Father, help us to quiet our hearts. There is a lot going on in them all the time. Help us to be those that would listen, listen for you and listen to you. As we get a picture today from your word of what we are to look like, may we examine ourselves as you tell us to do. May we hold ourselves up against the light of your sun and realize what we have because of what he's given to us. And may we then live accordingly. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. If you don't know me, my name's Steve. I'm on the elder team here at Hall Center Church, and I'm on the preaching team, especially for the last couple weeks. I want to say a happy Father's Day to the dads in the room, and for those of us that miss our dads today, God's got something for us as well. But for the dads that are baseball fans and get to do whatever they want today, the Red Sox and Yankees are playing a doubleheader on Father's Day, and no one can tell you you can't watch both of them. How cool is that? Ah, it was neat to see David yesterday. I always have to check and make sure he's not here. He keeps popping up on surprising me. But I got to see David yesterday, congratulate him. He had an 11-pound baby boy this last week. Talk about a dad. Yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I asked David, I asked David, I said, is he walking yet? And he goes, oh, he goes, oh, he drove me here today. <laughs> he was here for last year. It was great. And he's already calling him Van the Man. So I think that one's going to stick. It'll definitely gonna stick if I have anything to do with it, because I think it's a great name. Oh, Anyway, we also got that baptism next week. I hope you're all as excited as I am about that. It'll just be a wonderful time, a testimony. Um, so we are in the book of Acts, and I want to just quickly review. We've been watching the gospel spread from Jerusalem. It started, Jesus ascended. He said, go, and, they, and, and it just happened. And, and so it, where did it go? It went to Samaria, to those that were rejected by the Jews. It went to Ethiopia, as far away as anybody could imagine. It went to the worst of sinners, Paul, and, you, and hopefully you're, you're getting the theme of the last few chapters of Acts. It's been God's love just chasing down all peoples. And finally, we saw it go to the Gentiles. We watched God orchestrate a plan to bring Peter and Cornelius together to teach Peter that the gospel was for all people. And Peter brought a report back to the leaders in Jerusalem. And last week's passage ended in verse 18 of Acts 11. When Peter reported to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, when they heard these things about Peter and Cornelius' interaction and how God had given visions to each of them, it says that they fell silent. And if you recall earlier, like, are you kidding? You're hanging out with uncircumcised people? And Peter's like, yeah, I am. 
And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And I want you to know that that statement is a lightning bolt in your, in, in your Bible that just where the leaders of the church in Jerusalem said, It's available for all. No longer is it, is it have any boundaries whatsoever. And Ron shared with us that truth last week. How great was it to see Ron last week and have him share with us? I, I don't even go there. It was just too great. But, God, but, but Ron shared that it's always been God's plan that all kinds of people are a part of his family. And we need to remember that. And as fishers of men, we really need to understand this truth. And some of you got some great fish from a little paper bag last week. And some of you got some not-so-great terrible fish. Poor little William was up here. Oh, he got a can of tuna fish. He, he was a good sport about it. <clears throat> but the statement above that you see on the screen, it was a game-changing declaration by the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And God put the matter beyond dispute by sending his spirit on a Gentile household, Cornelius's. And so that gets us to here today, where, where the Jewish leaders have, have, have just essentially blessed and said, wow, this is amazing what God's doing. He's opening the doors to all peoples, and, and that is a really big deal. But to today's sermon, I've titled, What's in a Name? What's in a Name? And we're going to be in Acts 11, verses 19 through 30. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, that'd be great. It's also going to be up on the screen. And it's probably not a good idea necessarily always as a public speaker, as a preacher, to ask the audience things because you really never know what you're going to get. But I do, I am curious. Does somebody in here think they have literally the worst middle name on the planet? Oh, oh, Wendy, I'm safe with you. I know that. Wendy, do you have a worse middle name than me? Oh. Well, were you making fun of Ron? Ron, let's have it. This is wonderful. Oh, my land. Yes, please, Wendy, share with us. Leland. Okay, it's not so bad. Jason? You don't either. Oh, my heart. I'm so excited for you. I wish I was you. I can't. Yes, go ahead. Ah, nice. And just got rid of it. Great idea. All right. Well, this is how close we are, people. Because I don't think any of you can touch me. Unless you said Ujuvaniva or something like that. My, my middle name is Percy. That's my grandfather's name. Thank you, Lori. I appreciate that so much. Um, and I... I, along with Irene, have hated it my entire life. I dislike it. It just sounds dumb. And then they make movies, and they put the dumbest character, and they call him Percy, and you're just like, what am I doing here? Right? It happens, and you guys can all research and find that out. But here's what happened. I wound up going to college in Indiana, and I show up, and I'm on this floor of a whole bunch of guys, and... It's literally ridiculous how many Steves there were on my floor. 
25% of my floor was Steve's. Hey, Steve Muker, Steve Langer, Steve Whitehouse. I mean, there was just all kinds of Steves. And it was so people started coming up with nicknames. And I forget exactly how it happened, but guess what? For all of college, I was on that floor with those people. My name was Percy. It was. That's how I was known. And I come home from college, come back here, and nobody calls me that. It was just the weirdest thing to go from a place where you're known as that, and then here nobody would ever call it because it would be disrespectful. Well, here's the deal. Names, whether we like them or not, they give us an identity. They do. They can affect how we're perceived or understood by others. They can help you stand out, right, Agnes? I had just kidding, just kidding. They can help you stand out. Thank you for sharing, though, by the way. This is a safe place for me. Um, and so today in Acts 11, we're going to find that this is the first time that the followers of Jesus are called Christians, okay? And we're going to see what that meant. And I love that this passage kind of lays it out for us well enough. And it will help us understand what it means for us. Because we want God's word to define what we're about and not anything else. And so it's a cool opportunity for us to do that today. And so today's fundamental point is that calling ourselves Christian is more than a label. It means that we are living under an undeserved love, inviting others to do the same. And so the setting of today's passage is the city of Antioch. We're going to learn a little bit about that. We're going to talk through that city and what it meant that the gospel went there. Uh, the Christians of Antioch, I can tell you, they were not known for their hate, their venom, their judgmentalism, or their religious pride. And they also weren't known for their good theology, their pious life, and their vast Bible knowledge. Instead, they were known for looking and acting and behaving like Jesus. And as a result, the passage today is going to say they were called Christians, and it seems like they were called that by people that were not Christians. That was not a name they gave to themselves. And so let's dive into today's passage, and the first thing we're going to see is the gospel was spread through nameless preachers. We're going to read through and talk through the, um, the verses. Don't have a ton of verses to go through today, but in verses 19 to 20, we find some nameless preachers that had a massive impact, but they're nameless. Let's look at verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, 350 miles, by the way, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Verse 20, but there were some of them. And I love anytime you see that word, but in God's word, love it. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And that word Hellenists, lots of disagreement on what it is, but it's definitely Gentiles, um, so we're not going to dig into that too much. But some of those that scattered only spoke to Jews. They continued with this idea that this was an ethnic type of religion, 
But verse 20, but some of them found themselves in Antioch and preached the Lord Jesus to non-Jews. And so as the passage said, the news spread and it took place in Antioch and it's kind of perfect for a number of reasons. If you're not familiar with Antioch, here you go. It was founded in 300 BC by one of Alexander the Great's generals. He named it Antioch after his father, Antiochus. And about 15 miles down the river, um, he named a town called Seleucia after himself. And so over the years, it became known as Antioch the Beautiful because it had gorgeous buildings. And by the time Luke wrote Acts, it was famous for a long paved boulevard that ran from north to south and was lined with trees and fountains and colonnades. And so although it was a Greek city originally, its population at this time, about a half million, so it's a big city, was very, very, very diverse. Had a large colony of Jews, people from Persia, India, and even China, earning it the name, one of its names at least, the Queen of the East. And so you have Greeks, Jews, Romans, people from the East, and made quite a melting pot of people groups. And Josephus called Antioch the third city of the empire after Rome and Alexandria. And so this is where some of those that were scattered as a result of the persecution, where they preached the Lord Jesus, it says. And what happened next is what I've called newsworthy belief in the next two verses. Newsworthy belief in verses 21 and 22. Verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So news of another explosion of believers reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, just like they'd heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God in chapter 8, and that the Gentiles had received the word of God in the beginning of this chapter. Luke seems to, seems to be hinting that they needed to go check this out. They needed to go verify, hey, what's going on? They needed to assure themselves that everything was going well, but they also wanted to make sure that the church became healthy. And this time, however, they did not send an apostle. They sent Barnabas as an, as an emissary. In the next couple of verses, we've got an emissary. In verses 23 and 24, William Barclay called Barnabas the man with the biggest heart in the church. And as you recall, maybe from all the way back in chapter 4, his name meant son of encouragement. And so we're going to be hanging out with Barnabas more throughout Acts. Uh, but let's see what happened. Verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Okay, I do want us to take a moment and make sure that we have some understanding of the words that are used here. Because any time I get an opportunity to demonstrate 
how the book of Acts shows God's providence, I'm going to do it. And it says that a great many people were added to the Lord. We know what that means, and we know it's been used different languages and different language in different, different times. But if you've got your Bibles with you, can you go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 47? If you've got to go ahead and flip or in your, or in your iPhone or whatever, I'm not going to have it up here, so um, Bible drill. Acts 2, verse 47. The end of that verse says this. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It says, and the Lord added to their number. And today's passage, it says, many people were added to the Lord. The Lord added. People were added to the Lord. Hmm. What's going on here? God is accomplishing his mission of reaching all peoples with the gospel. John Stott has this to say about this particular verse and, and the tie-out to Acts 2.47. He says, when we see the Lord adding to the Lord, because that's between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 11, we see, so that he is both subject and object, source and and goal of evangelism, we have to repent of all self-centered, self-confident concepts of the Christian mission. Mm -hmm. This, this is not about God becoming a part of what we are doing. It is about us becoming a part of what God is doing. It is not God becoming a part of what you are doing. If you're here today and you find that this is your basic posture, that you need God to get on your page, it's a wonderful thing to repent from. It is about us becoming a part of what God is, is doing, and it's so easy for us to forget this because we like everything to be about us. It's not. And so, being a part of what God is doing is also never a solo act. Never. And so we see a team in the next couple of verses. Verses 25 and 26, again, an opportunity to see how God uses teamwork in his mission. Verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And there it is. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Tarsus was Saul's hometown, if you recall. If you also recall, the Jerusalem believers had sent him home, sent him back there when his life was threatened in chapter 9. And that was about seven or eight years previous to this. We don't know exactly what, he's, what he was doing in that time, although in his letter to, Galatia, to, to the church in Galatia, he seems to indicate that he was preaching in Syria and Cilicia, but we don't have hard facts of that. In any case, Barnabas went and got Saul and said, look at what's happening in Antioch. I need some help. I don't know exactly how, the, but I would love to have been a fly on that wall 
when Barnabas convinced Saul, come with me and go to this town that's just this melting pot and let's share Jesus and let's help this church. And for a year, they met with the church and taught a great many people, it says. And so they must have taught about Jesus, making sure that the church in Antioch knew both the facts as well as how important it was about his life, his death, his resurrection, the ascension, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus' return. All the basics, I'm sure, were included. And Luke doesn't tell us exactly why the disciples were first called Christians. I'd like to think it's because the word Christ was used over and over and over again. Luke, so far in Acts, has referred to them as disciples in chapter 6, saints in chapter 9, brothers twice in chapter 1 and chapter 9, believers in chapter 10, those being saved in chapter 2, and the people of the way in chapter 9, of all kinds of different descriptions of them. And it seems to have been the unbelieving people in Antioch who were actually known for their wit as well as their ability to name call. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Because there were just so many different types of people there. They just made up names for them. And that those gave the Christians their title. And it doesn't appear to necessarily have caught on initially. And if you didn't know this, it only appears two other times in the New Testament. The word Christian. Acts 26 and 1 Peter 4, those are the only two other two times. But at least emphasize the Christ-centered nature of following Jesus. And the word Christian, as it was formed in its original, was parallel to, I'm going to butcher some Greek or whatever, Herod, Her, Herodians, I'm just going to use the English. Herodians and the Caesarione or Caesar's people they just got in a bucket uh, along with those guys. And so it marked out the disciples as being above all followers, servants of Christ. What's in the name? Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. What follows is a foretelling. And I, and I kind of love how this gets placed right in here. In verses 27 and 28, let's dive right in. Verse 27, now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius, is Luke's parentheses there. And this famine is recorded by Josephus. Luke's point is not at all that the famine was foretold or even that the famine happened, but his point is how this famine presented next an opportunity to serve in verses 29 and 30, this famine presented an opportunity for the church in Antioch to serve. In verse 29, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so two things to notice here. Everyone gave according to his ability. What a principle. What can you do? Do that. Is it less than someone else? It doesn't matter. You are participating in what God is doing according to your ability. God's not comparing. You shouldn't either. 
The other thing that's interesting to note here is that the church in Antioch and the church in Judea or Jerusalem, Luke calls them brothers. And so quickly after the acceptance of Gentiles as uh, part of the family, they're called brothers even in this chapter. And so this is Luke indicating the truth that we've seen, that God's love reaches to all kinds of people. And so the gospel spread all the way to Antioch, a city with all kinds of people from all people groups, and they were called Christians. Well, let's go back to our point we started with, and we take a look at why. Calling ourselves Christians is more than a label. It means we are living under an undeserved love, inviting others to do the same. And so if you're here and you are not entirely sure when I use the term undeserved love, let me give you the basics of what those of us that call ourselves Christians are living under. The Bible teaches that every single one of us has been has been harmed by sin, has been tinged by sin, has been covered by sin, and not a single blessed one of us on our own can ever clean ourselves up to make ourselves acceptable to God. We just can't. We can try as hard as we want. We can be as good as we want, but it does not matter. We've inherited sin from Adam, and on our own we are condemned, completely condemned with no power of our own to save ourselves. But God, in his great love for us, he sent his son who paid the penalty for our sin and purchased a place in heaven for us. And it's just a gift that we accept. That's all there is to it, is accepting the free gift of what God offers in his son. And so we that call ourselves Christians are living under an undeserved love. Not a single blessed one of us deserves the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Not a single blessed one. And as we're living under that, it's our job. It's what God has called us to do to invite others to do the same. And so what does it look like? What does it look like? There's the reality. The reality is, if you call yourself Christian, you are living under an undeserved love. And how does that work its way out? We're going to see a few points from today's passage. First, living under undeserved love, hardships become opportunities to make much of Jesus. Doesn't that just sound wrong? Because hardships typically become an opportunity for me to make much of me and how bad my life is and how much this struggle is affecting me. And so the persecution that came as a result of Stephen's murder made so many people have to uproot themselves and, and, and leave their homes and escape Jerusalem. But what did they do? This entire last few chapters is showing how God used their hardship to bring the gospel to Samaritans and to an Ethiopian and to the third biggest city around, Antioch. Luke tells us they preach the Lord Jesus. Even in their uprooting, they made much of Jesus. When you are facing hardship, do you look for a way to make much of Jesus? I tell you, very often when we're facing hardship, we forget his name. 
And the Bible even gets ridiculous in this front. As you all know, we are told to rejoice when we're in the middle of struggles. Oof. When our natural inclination is to isolate and complain, Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And that word test means prove, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The Bible tells us that hardship tests or proves us, and we're not to act like, what? I can't believe this. We're supposed to act like it's strange when we face hardship, not at all. And so if we are called Christian, one of the things that means is that hardships will become opportunities to make much of Jesus. The next thing we'll see, living under undeserved love, is that a community of believers is obvious. The believers in Antioch were 350 miles away from the church in Jerusalem. And Luke tells us the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. When people make much of Jesus, it is obvious. How? Jesus told us in John 13 what a Christian community looks like and how public it will be. In John 13, 35, he says this. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love each other. That is how it is obvious that we are Christians. And guys, I would love to be able to bring a more complex model or algorithm and present its complexity to you and explain it. Jesus says it's not. He says that if we love each other, the world will know and it will be obvious. If we are called Christian, love should make our community obvious. Next thing, living under undeserved love. And we see this over and over and over again. The Holy Spirit leads. And so I'd like you to take a moment to think about what being a Christian means to you. We've seen the Holy Spirit lead and guide over and over again as we've studied the book of Acts. And so I want you to hear this. At the heart of being a Christian is that the Holy Spirit is our guide. The Holy Spirit is our guide. And yet we find ourselves following so many other things, whether it's other people, whether it's our emotions. Boy, don't we do that. The culture, so many things demand our allegiance and our attention, and we are to be led by the Spirit if we are to be called Christian. And Paul says it in this way in Romans 8, verses 14 and 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. And when we are led by the spirit, what Paul's telling us is that is when we're free. 
When we decide we want to follow something else, we become slaves. Whether it is our own thinking, whether it is some ways of the world, whether it is, whether, whatever it is, we become slaves. And Paul says the only way to be free is to be led by the Spirit of God. Free to be a part of what God is doing. and The Holy Spirit will lead us. And so if we're called Christian, we should be looking to the Spirit to lead us. Nothing else. Next, living under undeserved love, teamwork is the how. And wow, it just keeps coming up in the Bible. It's so weird. Teamwork is the how of our efforts. I love that Barnabas just went, you know what, I got to go to Tarsus. I need some help here. I'm going to go grab Saul. I'm going to bring him down here. And we're going to team up and we're going to make this happen. I'd love to know how those conversations went, if it was hard at all to convince Paul, or how excited they got. In any case, teamwork, and this is why it's so hard sometimes, teamwork requires humility. It does. It requires involving others in the mission. And it's the model the Bible gives us over and over again. And so there's a guy named Dave Harvey. He wrote a book called The Plurality Principle. If you want to jump into this, it's a really good book. He says, God loves unity. So he calls us to a team, a place where we must humbly persevere with one another to function effectively. God loves making us holy so he unites us to others who will make us grow. Solomon, Solomon puts it this way in Ecclesiastes 4.9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. And you can see that in today's passage in spades. If we are called Christian, we should be serving God with others, not a solo act. And finally, living under undeserved love, when needs become known, we run to them. When needs become known, we run to them. John Piper says it this way, love is the overflow of joy that meets the needs of others. Love is the overflow of joy that meets the needs of others. Led by the Holy Spirit, together we run to meet the needs of others. And if you haven't already been thinking about it, yesterday was literally the most fantastic example, the most beautiful example of an obvious display of teamwork and love and serving as we made this place available for everyone who loved Ruth McKay to come together, celebrate her life, and remember her and minister to the family. And so I echo, Mark, a huge thank you to everyone that was involved. Did you see, if you ever get a chance in one of those scenarios where we fill this place, just stand in the corner and watch. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. The service and the love that was here yesterday. And I love how we have that so close in the rearview mirror as an example of everything the Bible's teaching us today. And so Paul keeps it simple as he often does in Philippians 2, verse 4. He says, let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We are called Christian. And so we use hardships to make much of Jesus. 
Our community is obvious and known because of our love for each other. We let the Holy Spirit lead us, not all the other voices that call for us to follow. And when we do anything, the how is teamwork. And we run to the needs of others. We are living under an undeserved love. And it changes everything. And it creates a community. That Paul describes in this way in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 19 through 21 says, So then, and, and this is a message to all us Gentiles, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is nuts, guys. This is what is happening when we do community together. In Ephesians 2.22, the next verse, I just want you to see this. This is what's happening to us. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you hear that? We are being built into a dwelling place for God. Back to our point. Calling ourselves Christian is more than a label. It means we are living under an undeserved love, inviting others to do the same. We are called Christian. Today's passage helps us understand what that means and what we've seen and what it teaches us is that we use hardships to make much of Jesus. Our community is obvious because we love each other so deeply. We let the Holy Spirit lead. We do it, we do what we do as a team. And we run to the needs of others. Does being a Christian mean something else to you? It is absolutely an overused word. If it does mean something else to you, maybe go back to God's word and refresh yourself. May each one of us be reminded continually that as a community, we're living under an undeserved love, inviting others to do the same that is what we're about. And so the singers and musicians can come up. We're going to sing. I, I, we're going to sing "Let Revival Come." Brandon's my favorite song. It's funny as I sat down in my office and played my YouTube playlist. This song was the first one that came up. And so we're going to sing and ask revival to come. It will only come as a result of the love we have for each other and following God's word as we've seen today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, oh, help us. Help us to not view the label Christian as a religion. You tell us in your word that if you want it to be a religion, okay, orphans and widows, take care of them and keep yourself being 
from being polluted by the world. Help us. Help us to when we call ourselves a Christian, understand what's wrapped up in that is the fact that we exist in a place of complete undeserved love. And that undeserved love, you call it grace so often in your word, and that grace is what should motivate us to love each other, to work as a team, to serve one another. Help us to continually be reminded of that. I thank you for how your word has reminded us of it today. I thank you and I praise you for the example of how it was lived out yesterday and is lived out so often in this body. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing.